Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. After the last five months that we have had, I cannot imagine a better series to be beginning today than stories of hope. For the next five weeks, we're going to hear stories of hope that come from Jesus' teaching and Jesus' encounters with people. And in the days that our world has been going through, days that are frightening, confusing, disorienting and demoralising because of the things that are happening economically, socially, racially and medically, we need stories of hope now more than ever. We need stories of hope that we can cling to, stories of hope that we can build our lives on, stories that reveal afresh the true, reliable, unshakable hope that we have in Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Luke 18, 9 to 14. We'll be unpacking this passage today. But before we do that, I wonder, have you ever noticed how much trouble we get into when we measure things in the wrong way? There are funny measurement errors, like one I read of recently when a lady ordered her favourite longed for designer chair online for what she thought was a steal. And then when it came in the post, it was perfect for a doll. Slightly stressful measurement errors happen in life too, like when I went to pick up my year 12 formal dress the afternoon of the event, I do like to leave things to the last minute, and the seamstress had measured in centimetres, but sewn in inches. So my dress was three times too big for me. And then there are disastrous measurement errors. Like in 1999, when a group of engineers used imperial measurement units to build the Mars orbiter, but the other team involved used metric. The use of two different systems caused the spacecraft to be thrown so far off track it approached Mars on a trajectory that brought it too close and it disintegrated as it passed through the upper atmosphere. Oh, this mistake of measurement cost NASA 125 million back then and a lot of credibility. But measuring things the wrong way also gets us into trouble when we measure people against ourselves. Most of us subconsciously move through the world, dividing people into good and bad, in and out, safe and unsafe, worthy and unworthy. To us, how someone looks or sounds, acts, helps us to place them somewhere on our invisible social hierarchy of who is good, who has merit, who is performing. If you've seen the true story captured in the movie, Catch Me If You Can, in which a man pretends to be a pilot, a lawyer and a doctor and gets away with it, then you have seen how being handsome, looking wealthy, speaking like you've had the very best education and acting like you know what you're doing leads people to treat you in a certain way, with deference, respect and honour. 
We might not have a caste system here like they do in India where people are defined and discriminated against purely because of the caste that they come from. But we still do this in subtle ways. We have a social ladder. It's just more subversive. In Western society, we measure people's merit by how much money they've made, where they went to school, what they look like, and where they live. The second question we ask each other after what is your name is what do you do for a living, as if that could possibly be the most important thing we could ever learn about someone. What does this say to us about what we intrinsically value? Without realising it, we present the shiniest parts of our social media feeds, our careers, our families and our achievements to each other for approval and for a place in this invisible hierarchy. And we treat with suspicion the people further down the other end. As Christians, we're often confident in the way that we live before God and amongst our society, but we can also often be guilty of having a moral hierarchy of judging other people's values and behaviours and choices as good or bad in comparison to ours. And this isn't just a modern 21st century problem. People have been measuring things and themselves and others by the wrong yardstick for a long time. So how do we avoid this common pitfall? In today's passage, we find two people who are using very different measurements when it comes to their approach to others and to God. They have two different takes on merit and performance, and Jesus shows us which of these two is the right approach. So let's read this together. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So today, let's look at both of these characters in our parable. First, the Pharisee. If the term Pharisee is new for you, it describes a member of an ancient Jewish sect who was distinguished apart from others by strict observance of the written and traditional law. Pharisees are commonly thought of as being a little bit pretentious and having a very literal holier-than-thou attitude. They genuinely considered themselves to be the best at this religion thing, and they worked hard to appear that way to others. They pledged to obey every minute detail of God's law and often went beyond the letter of the law in their own personal lives. This Pharisee shows us a lot about himself within the first short verses. The first thing we notice is his posture. Although standing to pray is absolutely fine, the words that follow the description of his posture show us that the Pharisee was standing tall and straight with pride, not with worship. He shows us his heart through his posture, but he truly reveals it in his prayer. Now, comparison is never good for us or for other people, but it's especially bad when we compare ourselves to others and find ourselves as better than them. 
Interestingly, this is a prayer of someone who prides themselves on being really religious, but it doesn't begin with worship or adoration. This prayer is not about God's holiness, his power, his goodness. No, the Pharisee's prayer is all about himself. And worse than this, he makes his prayer about how good he is as measured against his neighbours. And here we see the sad reality of what it looks like when we slip into living with an inflated image of ourselves and our holiness and righteousness to the point of despising other people. He lists the sins of other people like he could step on them on rungs of a holiness ladder. Now, God, of course, does love holiness. He delights when we choose to live the way that he's called us to. The behaviours that the Pharisee lists as a laundry list of other people's sins are actually legitimate. If we look at them, robbers, well, God makes it clear he's not a fan of theft. He puts it in number eight of the Ten Commandments. Evildoers, it's a pretty safe bet that our good and holy God is against any form of evil and any choice to do evil deeds. Adulterers, God designed marriage as a safe, honouring, respectful and healthy relationship and his heart is grieved whenever we hurt those that we love in small ways, let alone in earth-shattering ways like being unfaithful. And tax collecting. It's not so much that God hates tax. Even when the Pharisees tried to trip Jesus up on this point, he said famously, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. What God hates isn't tax, it's injustice. And tax collectors were generally known as unjust people who were in the tax business all for themselves. As an oppressed nation under Roman rule, the Jews were already heavily burdened with up to 40% of their income being taxed. And on top of that crippling responsibility, the tax collectors were famous for coming along and charging more just so they could skim some off the top for themselves. This meant an already struggling people were being robbed by the tax collectors. And they weren't even Roman. The Romans made sure that most of the time they had Jews do this job among their own communities. And no one could fail to notice how the local tax collector lived and ate and drank and dressed better than everyone else at their expense. So when we consider these behaviours listed by the Pharisee, of course, yes, God is pleased when someone doesn't commit evil deeds, doesn't cheat on their spouse or steal or extort. But the Pharisee, while being right about God's attitude to these sins, was blindly wrong in thinking that listing the absence of these sins in his own life is what will please God. He has an insurance policy, though, doesn't he? As well as not doing the wrong things, he is fastidious. You could call him obsessed about doing the right things, so much so that he is surely beyond reproach. Every waking moment is spent obsessing about how he can be right how he can follow the rules and be better than everyone else. You can almost hear his eagerness to bring his list of good deeds to God in prayer. In his prayer, he makes sure to remind God he's an excellent faster. He was just perfect at following the Jewish customs of his day of fasting twice a week, even though they weren't included or required by the law of Moses. Unfortunately, his fasting is completely in vain because his motivation is self-righteousness. Fasting isn't about being good or looking good. It's about humbling ourselves before God. He was fasting in order to be able to put his hope in his performance, not in God. And then his tithing. 
Not only does he tithe his income, his crops and his livestock, as was required, he proudly proclaims that he tithes a tenth of everything. Can you imagine coming to his house for his 30th birthday, bringing a beautiful cake you've slaved over and seeing him slice off a tenth and put it aside to tithe it? Pharisees like this spent their days making sure to carefully and publicly tithe even the parsley they chopped for dinner so that they could be blameless, thinking that their goodness would ensure that they remained good with God. And yet God is not impressed with this pedantic sort of worship. In Luke 11:42, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees! You pay tithes of mint and rue and every herb, but you disregard justice and the love of God. Excuse me. <clears throat> you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. The Pharisee had his prayer and his behavior completely upside down. Of course, fasting and tithing and obeying God's laws are a good thing. But if our motivation is wrong, it makes our offering of right living completely empty. And so we come to the tax collector. The tax collectors were as bad in most people's eyes as the Pharisees were good. Nobody liked them. They were seen as traitors to their country. Their sin was as obvious to everyone as the Pharisees' holiness was. When we compare this tax collector's approach to God, to the Pharisees' approach, we see a dramatically different posture, don't we? Instead of the bold walk-in and the tall, proud stance of the Pharisee, the tax collector comes quietly, almost hesitantly. Standing at a distance, you can imagine him hovering at the back, unsure of the reception he'll get. After all, you all know exactly who he is, what he does, and how he lives. He doesn't even lift his eyes to pray, and his prayer, it's not about anyone else. He beats his chest in a physical act of grief and repentance and begins his prayer by acknowledging God for who he is, the only one capable of and willing to bestow mercy. In his prayer, he throws himself on this God of mercy. He acknowledges his sin and he brings his repentance straight to God. He doesn't try to step upon the sin of others to minimise his own sin. He doesn't say, forgive me, God, for being a tax collector, but remember, I have not cheated on my wife, I have not beaten anyone up, and I've not murdered anyone. No, he claims his own sinful position honestly and humbly before God. He stands in the stark awareness that nothing he could ever do could ever match God's holiness. He doesn't even mess around with the Pharisee's idea that his performance could ever get him out of the human mess that we're all born into. Instead, he prays simply and humbly, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In this prayer, he seeks the justification and the forgiveness that only God can offer him. And in admitting his helplessness and his brokenness before our loving God, he finds grace. This grace he finds is entirely, completely undeserved. And in him, of all people receiving this grace, this is where the hope lies for each one of us in this passage today. This hope is for you, whether you've been following Jesus for 50 years or just hearing about him now and following him for a short time. When Jesus told this parable for the first time, it shocked the people listening to him. They would have found it absolutely unbelievable, unfair and absurd that out of these two people, the shiny, perfect, excellent Pharisee who does everything right and the dirty, rotten, crooked tax collector, that God could ever be pleased with the tax collector. 
because he throws himself on God's mercy instead of on his own self-sufficiency. As I'm retelling this parable today, two millenniums have passed since Jesus shocked his audience. So what do you hear today? Where do you find yourself in this parable? What posture do you take in your heart of hearts when you approach God in prayer? What does your heart tell you when you compare yourselves to other people? It's really easy to become proud of our own goodness and performance, looking down on other people who don't quite have it all together like we do. We know it's not right, but we can easily become blind to this sort of behaviour that's automatic within ourselves. Maybe when you're really honest, in your heart, you have those thoughts of, thank you, God, that I am not like that colleague at work who just does the bare minimum and still gets by, the mother of three that was on the news after getting caught drug driving, the person in crushing debt, the same-sex couple next door, the 30-year-old lining up for Centrelink, sleeping all day and playing games all night, that person getting on a boat with their children to flee their country, that person who votes differently to you, that person you know who destroyed their marriage with an affair, and the people cheating on their tax returns. Today, if you're sitting here thinking, thank you, God, that at least I'm not like the Pharisee who judged people wrong and didn't even know how to pray to you, beware if that's what comes into your mind, because that is how we fall into the same posture as the Pharisee. Craig Blomberg identifies this trap really well when he writes, might one of the quickest ways to recognise such Pharisees be to look at Christians today who thank God that they are not like the Pharisee, or thank God that they are like the tax collector in their own humility. Unlike us, for Jesus, people are not divided into good and bad. They are defined by whether they are proud sinners or humble sinners. Self-sufficiency and pride is the problem and remembering God's unbelievable goodness and saving grace in spite of our sin and brokenness is the answer. Humble sinners throw themselves against the mercy of God, upon the mercy of God, rather. Church, we need to humbly, really, genuinely take in this morning the incredible, ridiculously unfair, in the very best way, completely generous and undeserved grace of God that has been lovingly lavished upon us. Through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God alone has made a way for our brokenness and sin to be made right. Scripture is full of verses that help us to see the way that God sees himself, the world, each other, and ourselves. We see in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And in Romans 3, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight, by the works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of our own sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And in 2 Timothy, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Jesus before the beginning of time. These are words of hope for us to build our lives on. We need to make sure we take these words in and let them transform us. In our parable today, the Pharisee thought that he was doing all the work, God's work, for him. The tax collector knew that he couldn't do that work, and so he asked God to. Have you asked God for the forgiveness that he longs to give you? Or maybe did you ask such a long time ago? that you got busy living a good Christian life and somehow while you once lived from grace and mercy, you now live to keep and sustain that grace and mercy of God, to stay in his good books. Whenever we find ourselves feeling or believing that God loves us because of our excellent Christian behaviour or doesn't love us or someone else because of their sin, we have adopted the posture of the Pharisee. To counteract this, we need to take in, absorb, and truly know the hope that is offered us in Jesus' undeserved grace. And once we take it in, we have to do the daily work of remembering it. It's not enough to hear it once or just on Sundays. We have to tune our hearts daily to make sure that we are always consciously placing ourselves in God's care as people of grace and not people of performance. There's a reason the prophet Jeremiah doesn't mince his words when he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Only you can do the daily work of guarding your heart. And it's not an insignificant priority. We read in Proverbs, keep and guard your heart with all vigilance and above all that you guard, above your family, above your income and your investments and your house. For out of your heart flow the springs of life both from your heart towards God and from your heart towards other people. The reality is that this side of heaven, we will repeatedly fall short. But let us also be those who repeatedly fall on our knees, thanking God for his forgiveness and mercy. Let us live out of his forgiveness and never live for it. Jesus calls us to let go of the constant need for other people's approval of our longing for power and for privilege. Instead, he teaches us to throw ourselves on the mercies of God and he teaches us that the hope of real life is found in humility and in dependence on him. The invitation we're hearing today, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, is full of hope for each one of us. Our hope is in the fact that no matter who we are, what we've done, where we fall on the society's hierarchy, We are not called to do better or to be better, to strive to make sure that our performance gains God's acceptance. Our hope is in Jesus, who calls us to turn away from our self-sufficiency and to accept his mercy and to live a life that looks just like him because of the grace that he has given us. So would you stand with me today as we choose to physically posture ourselves before God today with humility, 
with honesty and with gratitude. Let's pray. Lord, today we gratefully and humbly echo the words of Christians throughout the generations. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. We thank you for the hope that we have because of your life and your death and your resurrection. We turn away from all the ways that we sin every day. We turn away from the ways that we sin in self-sufficiency and pride and judgment. We are so deeply grateful for your grace and forgiveness and ask that you would help us to understand it more each and every day, to live out of it. Help us to see what you see and to live as people of great grace towards ourselves and others and you. Amen. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.